0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit POMH.org. Good morning. How are y'all doing? Good. If you have your copy of Scripture, you can turn to chapter 12 of Romans. Just speeding our way on through this book. And if you will turn two pages to the right, you will see the end is near. But we're covering two verses today, so at that rate, it may still take a while. <laughs> uh, I was in Talladega, Alabama, I think that's the way you're supposed to pronounce it, Talladega, uh, this past couple of days um, with the men's retreat. And so we had a great time out there. Uh, I was um, privileged to be the speaker for the weekend, and we had a great time with sessions there. And the men wanted me to relate to all of you wives that are here. Um, to not fuss at them because one of them came up to me afterwards and said, you're going to get me in trouble because if you go to church in the morning, I told her this thing was all weekend, she's going to think I'm out running around doing something. She's like, why did Jack make it back and you're not at the back yet? So they actually had another session this morning, Mark Powell was teaching them uh, and so they're finishing up about lunchtime and they'll be headed back. So Ethel, leave Fred alone, uh, give him a little break right there. Um, If you have your copy of Scripture, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 12. Let's go ahead and read our text for this morning. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, This passage is probably one that's very familiar to you, right? So when we go through the book of Romans, there are several passages that kind of stand out to us. Many of them are ones that maybe we learn to witness to others where we have learned uh, the Roman road. Um, Some of them are passages that we've heard taught on so many times, and this is probably one of those passages. You may have heard many sermons on this passage, but today you're gonna hear it again but you're gonna hear it within the context of everything that we've already been studying in the book of Romans. And I think maybe you'll hear it from a different perspective today. You'll see new insights into it because we've done the diligence of studying all the way up to this point, knowing where Paul has been bringing us through this whole book. Now, all of a sudden, this is going to come alive for us, I hope for us today anyway. So in this chapter, Paul's thoughts right here, these first two verses are flowing out of how the last chapter ended. If you remember at the end of chapter 11, which 9, 10, and 11, Paul took a break from how he ended chapter 8. So let's go back and think about that for a moment. In 6, 7, and 8, Paul was talking about this process of justification, right? How are we made right How is it that we can be righteous before God? Anyway, at the end of chapter eight, he talks about the election of God. And then immediately he knows there are some questions in the reader's minds that are coming up. So he stops for a moment to begin to answer those, specifically what happens to Israel in this and can God be trusted and is God fair in all of this? And so for three chapters, Paul has been answering that. And the very end of chapter 11, he breaks into this doxology, even though he's not even done with his letter yet. But because he's so amazed at how God is in his sovereignty working everything out for his good and how God is using rebellion to bring about redemption and reconciliation, he's just, his mind is blown by all of this. And he breaks out into that doxology and he talks about these mercies of God that we have that have been extended to us. And he talks about how this vast wisdom of God is unsearchable we can't search the ways of God we can't understand or fathom his depths of wisdom we can't even begin to be his counselor or tell him what to do and so now he comes back to so chapter 12 both is a continuation of the end of 11 and it's a return back to where he was going at the end of chapter 8 does that make sense So in other words, it's flowing out of this great declaration that he makes at the end of chapter 11, but he's also returning back to that idea that he was creating in 6, 7, and 8, and specifically there at the end of chapter 8. So let's look at this verse by verse. Let's focus on that first verse. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, notice that after spending a considerable amount of time talking about the sovereignty of God and God's power and control over all of human history, Paul returns to this idea again about human responsibility. Notice there he's encouraging you to do something he's saying, this is something that you have to do. You have to make a willful choice to make yourself a sacrifice to God. And so the best way to understand this is through the word of God and through the Holy Spirit of God, God has set up great parameters for us, but yet within those parameters that are the sovereignty of God, there's responsibility that is on us to enact the power that has been gifted to us by his spirit. We are not programmed robots when we become Christians and we just go and begin to do whatever God wants us to do. No, it takes a relationship. It takes getting to know him, to hear him, to have a a conversation with him, to be led by him, to respond to him. And so we are constantly in this process of sanctification, growing in our understanding of God, growing in our understanding of ourselves and learning more and more to trust him. And so that's what Paul is trust are encouraging us to do is to lean in more heavily into God trust him with what he said he is sovereign his wisdom is deep his ways are unsearchable lean into him so this is paul appealing to these roman christians and really to us today to embrace the truths that he has been presenting and that we would follow these truths to their logical end or their logical response, which would be if we believe everything that we've talked about is true, if we truly believe that God is divinely sovereign, if we believe his wisdom is deep, if we believe his ways are unsearchable, if we believe he can totally be trusted, then we should be offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so that's where he's going with this. Surrender to God, must flow from a willing participation of the Christian. Surrender to God must flow from a willing participation by a Christian. Okay? So when he says there present your bodies as a living sacrifice, Paul's first century readers, they they were very familiar with this idea of sacrifice. They were very familiar. Matter of fact, many of them Had probably stood close by to the altar while a sacrifice was made for them or for their family. They probably witnessed this many times and not even, not not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles were very familiar with sacrifices because even the pagan deities had certain sacrifices that were made to them. So both of these groups of people that Paul would be writing to, both the Gentiles who have received Christ and the Jews who have received Christ would have been very familiar with this idea of sacrifice. And so when he talks about this, he's talking about a language that's very familiar to them, not so familiar to us today. So it is very significant that Paul uses this word there, bodies. Notice that right there. Very important because it's an important word in Christian understanding. Because Paul uses this term over and over again in chapter 6. Um, he also uses it in several of his other letters. Uh, I'll give you, for instance, in chapter 6, verse 13 of Romans, Paul says that our bodies are instruments of righteousness. If you go over to verse 6 of chapter 6, it says that our bodies are a body of sin, right? Uh, and then if you go to verse 12 of chapter 6, Paul knows that while it is still possible to sin in these mortal bodies, he says that sin will not reign over us in these bodies, okay? Okay. And so, if you go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, verse 15, Paul says that we are all members of the body of Christ. Um, chapter uh, 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 19, he says, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians seven thirty four, he says, he's speaking of, of this body being holy or, or us being holy both in body and in spirit. So over and over again, Paul uses this idea of body. So when we come to this, we have to understand that he means something very specific. He could have used another analogy, but he comes to this point because he has developed this concept in his perspective of who we are and the world around us and how we are relating to this idea of salvation, the sin that we have left behind and the salvation that we're embracing. So Paul has come to this point in his explanation of salvation, where he begins to show how this, this grace of God is shown to us through Christ and how this grace of God is not just some spiritual experience, but that it also has some very tangible results and expectations. Grace affects our whole existence. And I think sometimes we get caught up thinking about salvation as some kind of just uh, esoterical thought process, right? It's something that happens in our minds, in our hearts, something that happens on a spiritual level. But we have to realize that scripture says very clearly that salvation also happens on a physical level because the transformation of the heart also leads to a transformation of the mind, which will inevitably lead to a transformation of our actions. And so Paul says that as these things begin to happen within us, that there should be a change that happens outside of us. Now, Paul is not advocating behavior modification. He's not saying, hey, this is how you are a Christian. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, when you become a Christian, everything changes from the inside out. And the way you participate with what God is doing on the inside is that you enact on the outside, things that are in accordance with what's happening on the inside. So you can't get those reversed. You, you, you don't go out there and start doing things, hoping the inside will catch up with what the outside is doing. It all has to start from within. It starts at the center of who we are, and then it works its way out. That's why he spent so much time getting to this point before we get to these practical issues that he deals with in chapter 12 and really throughout the rest of the book of Romans here. And notice that he says right here that this is a living sacrifice. Now, that's very different from the idea that they were traditionally used to. I mean, you think about them when they talk about a living sacrifice. Now, obviously, yes, the goat or the sheep were living when they maybe brought it into the temple or to the tabernacle. But their idea of sacrifice was not the first part of it. It would have been the finishing product. It was something that was alive, that was sacrificed, and now is dead. And so somehow he's saying you, to be, you are to be a living Sacrifice. Well, what does Paul mean by living sacrifice? Well, obviously he's making a point here. To, to emphasize that idea of being a living sacrifice, Paul wants us to focus in on something. Now, we are going to come to that, but we're going to wait until the end of the chapter because that's where everything comes to this this. Very clear understanding of where Paul's been going. So keep that tucked away in the back of your mind because there is a significance to Paul's illustration here. Now, if we go back to chapter 6, Paul speaks of believers in verse 2 of chapter 6 as dying to sin, okay? In verse 8, he talks about they have a life in Christ. So verse 2, you're dead to sin, And then over in verse 8, you are alive in Christ. Verse 13, it says they are alive from the dead. So again, Paul emphasizes there is this life that has come from death. So what do we do with this newfound life? That's what Paul is dealing with here. We, in essence, Paul says, we lay it on the altar of God. We have been resurrected from the death of sin, Because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have been given life. Now, what do we do with it? You give it back to God. You lay it back on the altar. But this is a living sacrifice. Keep that in the back of your mind. And he talks about this life as being set apart. Paul literally says, holy and acceptable. And remember that word holy, we we think of it very differently in our day and time. We think of holy as someone who is without sin. And while it kind of carries that along with it, literally, it means just set apart. It means set apart for a very specific purpose. So when it says that we are holy or or this is a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God, it means it's something that is set apart. Now, think about this. Whenever they gave a sacrifice to God, they gave the whole thing to God. It was all sacrifice to God. And so whenever the burnt offering was given, all of it was given to the Lord and to the Lord's work. And so with the picture that Paul is painting for us is whenever we give a sacrifice, a sacrifice is not the same thing as a tithe. A tithe is only a tenth of something. But when he talks about giving your life as a sacrifice, he's talking about the totality of who you are, every aspect of your being, why? Because you are dead in your sin and you would not even have this life had God not resurrected you by the power and the work of Jesus Christ and bringing you back from your deadness of sin, he has given you hope, a new life. And so what, how do we respond to that? We respond by giving this life in totality back to him or we live this life for him. That's the picture that Paul is painting for us here. That's what we do with this new life that God's given. So God is not satisfied with just part of who we are. God is not satisfied with our tithe. In other words, you can't come to a place that's a church and just drop in 10% of what you have earned and then just get God off of your back and go live your life however you want to live. That's not what the idea of tithe is all about. The tithe is more like the wave offering that the priest would give. It's when part of the harvest was brought in and it's basically saying, Lord, you have given to me and now I give back to you. And once you've dedicated that, then all the rest of the harvest can be brought in. That's more of the picture of that tithe. But when he's what he's talking about here is a true picture of burnt offering sacrifice. Everything belongs to him. Why? Because in the Old Testament, yes, there was a 10th of this and a 10th of that, and it would end up to be about 22 to 24% of everything everything that you made was dedicated to the Lord and and the picture of the new testament is everything belongs to the Lord now everything has always belonged to the Lord but Utterly in the New Testament, we see this so clear, right? Because we were without nothing. Anything we have is only because of Christ. And so we dedicate all that we are to him. Now that doesn't mean you come to the church and you write a checkout for your entire bank account, right? That's not what God's asking you to do. And he's also not asking you to abandon whatever job you have and go into the ministry, at least not all of you. So there is this idea of responsibility of stewardship. In other words, God has given you gifts. God has given you talents. God has given you special abilities, abilities that maybe other people don't have as specifically and as keenly as you do. And so God has given that to you so that you may glorify him in these bodies. Because without him, those gifts, think about this, those blessings have no purpose. They have no direction. The best you can do is in the short time you have here kind of pile up a little bit of treasure for yourself or a little bit of notoriety for yourself or make yourself feel good or make yourself bigger in the eyes of other people. That's the most you could do. But when you die, it's gone. You can't take any of it with you. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we, Paul says, are promised as well because we are in Christ, it does more than just forgive us of our sins. It gives us a hope and a future. And, and by giving us that hope in future, it also gives purpose and meaning to everything that we have today. Our money, our time, our talents, our families, all of these things now have a trajectory that goes into eternity. So we are using those things to further the kingdom of God, not to build up our kingdom here. What a tragedy to be resurrected from the deadness of sin only to live for a world that's passing away. So Paul wants us to think about something that is beyond ourselves and that's where he's drawing our attention here. He's helping us realize that because of what Christ did for us and because of the impartation of the Holy Spirit through salvation, that we are now able to do things that in the Old Testament they weren't able to do. For instance, let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. That's a passage that we're very familiar with. It's called the Shema. And it starts off like this. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with, what's that word? All "All your heart and with all all your soul and with, yeah, it doesn't say a tenth, does it? It doesn't say love the Lord with a 10th of your might. Love the Lord with a 10th of your heart. Love the Lord with a 10th of your might. No, it's everything. Why? Because everything comes from him, everything exists for him and everything finds its end in him, right? Isn't that what Paul just said at the end of chapter 11? And so he's saying, if that is truly who God is, then now we are able to do what Israel was not able to do in the Old Testament because they didn't have the power to do it. It was not within them. They tried, they wanted to, they never could do it in the flesh. It takes the spirit of God working in us to enable us to do this. But now Paul says, because of all that God has done and all that God wants to do, now we can present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. This is what Paul has in mind. Something that we could have never done before, now all of a sudden is possible. Now look how he continues it in verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is the good and acceptable, And perfect. So while he starts out verse one in the positive, notice that he starts out verse two in the negative. Okay. And I don't mean that it's a negative sentence, but what I'm saying is it, it's the difference of having a positive statement versus using not or nor or something like that. That's a negative word. Okay. So writers would do this to create a contrast so that we would notice something that they're saying. Okay. So when he starts off verse one, positive, starts off verse two, negative, do not be conformed, but be transformed. There is something very particular that Paul wants us to draw our mind minds to. And that is this very positive attitude towards God and what God is doing and what we should give to God and a very negative attitude towards this world and what this world wants us to give to it. And so he uses that term, this world. Now, the key to being transformed, according to Paul, lies with the renewal of the mind. Do you see that? somehow this idea of being transformed is connected to a renewal of the mind. So Paul's talking about being transformed, not with just our bodies, not just our actions, but from within. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, remember this all flows out of verse one, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, right? And how do we do this? Well, we do this by not being conformed to this world, not living like we used to live, but being transformed. Being transformed in our actions? No, transformed by the renewal of your mind because all your actions flow from the way that you think. So somehow Paul is saying, because of what God has done in you, because of what Christ has done in you, there is something that has to happen within the core of who you are that will begin to change everything that you do. And so when we begin to see what Paul is unfolding for us, we have to dig a little deeper. We have to think a little bit differently. Paul is using some very particular words here. For instance, he says, do not be conformed to this world. He doesn't say the world. He says this world. Now, this world means there's another world. Does the scripture talk about two different worlds? Right, it talks about the multi-universe, right? I'm just kidding, we're not talking about that. No, it does. The picture is that there is this world that we live in now and there is what? The world to come. Another word that is used in our English language, matter of fact, the same word in Greek will be translated two different ways. Sometimes it's translated world, sometimes it's translated, translated age. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is he saying? There's a certain way that you used to think before you knew Christ. And that way of thinking was this. It was all centered with everything that happens right here. But because of Christ, you have been enlightened in your minds to understand that this life is but a vapor. That there's something far greater on the other side of this something to live for that's gonna last forever. This life comes to an end. This world, he says in another place, is passing away. How do we use the term passing away? We talk about it when we refer to death, right? When we talk about someone has passed away, that time has passed. We're talking about the end of something. We're talking about the passing of something. This world will die. And so in essence, what Paul is saying is what a tragedy, what a tragedy if you have been brought from death to life only to live for something that's gonna die. You have been brought from death to life to live for something that's gonna live past this world for something that's gonna last beyond this age, this world, this life. You see, this is very significant because this idea of the world that Paul uses here carries that temporal aspect, it's passing away. And Paul has spent so much time up to this point, so much ink up to this point, showing us that there is this other life to come that is a very real life. It's the eternal life. It's that life where we will be transformed or we will be resurrected into it. We will be transformed in a moment when Jesus returns, or if we die we will be resurrected to this new life and then we will live forever. Isn't that what scripture says? And so Paul keeps pointing us back to these truths and Paul, he spent so much time drawing our attention to it. Now he's saying, listen, if you really believe these things, if you say that you are one who believes the word of God, then how are you embracing this in your mind? The way you think about the world around you, your existence in that world, I love how one author says, he says, Christians have been introduced into the life of the world to come. What a tragedy then if they conform to the perishing world that they have left. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't think the way everybody else thinks in this world. Because see, this this really impacts every aspect of our life. Now, I'm not making light of anything that, that you may be going through, but even suffering here. Paul is letting us know suffering has meaning. Matter of fact, it's one of the things that really makes Christianity so unique of all the religions in the world. Christianity is the only one that gives suffering a purpose. Suffering is to be avoided in every other religion. And yet suffering is to be embraced by Christians. Well, that seems so harsh. It's not if you really believe the whole thing if you really believe the whole thing, this life is but a vapor. God is just showing us, he's teaching us something. He is preparing us for our glorification. And so he's allowing us to go through very difficult circumstances, because in the end he can be trusted to make all things new. And so we get so focused on this world. Why God? Why am I going through this? Why are my children going through this? Why can't I have that? Why don't you answer the prayers in the way that I do? You are thinking according to this world. And Paul says, don't think according to what you have been saved from, think according to what you are saved to. That should become the perspective that you have in life. So this is what Paul means by the renewing of your mind. He's saying that you can't keep thinking like you always have, that somehow this world is all that there is. That's the way we used to think you have to begin to think beyond this world. If we really believe this, then this belief should pervade the entire thought process of every topic from how we spend money to how we embrace the suffering and the tribulations that we go through in this life. So then this is not some mindless emotionalism that Paul is thinking of here, but it's actually a rational approach to life Considering all the truths that have been revealed to us about this life and about this life that we are having that is to come. And so, part of the point of Paul's gospel is his belief that this age to come has already begun in Jesus and supremely in his death and his resurrection. So, in other words, he says, because of the death and resurrection of Christ, and because you are in Christ, therefore, this new age that is coming has already been enacted in you. Therefore, it's not something off in the distance that you're like, boy, I hope I make it to there. No, because God did this. And what God starts, God finishes. And so, this has already started. It's already enacted in you. And Paul says, live in what you have been resurrected to, and keep your focus on that, and live for those things. Because you are going somewhere and these things are already true today, we're not waiting for them to become true later on. And so this is the kind of worship that Paul speaks of here. And only this kind of worship can come from a relationship with God. It's the only way we can do this type of worship, engage in this type of worship. It has to come from a keen relationship with God an intimate relationship with God we are growing in our understanding of Him. We are growing in our faith in Him. We are growing in our trust in Him. You know, when we go through these sufferings and these trials and these tribulations in life, what happens is it forces us to lean more heavily on the Lord. And when we lean more heavily on Him, He embraces us and He shows His faithfulness to us. He sustains us. Yeah, the things don't necessarily get hunky-dory and better all the time, but what happens is He shows His faithfulness to us. He begins to unfold for us the plan that He has for us. And the more we get to know him, the more he reveals about what he has for us. And this is how we enter into that obedience. You see, let's go back and look for a moment at the verses that this passage flows from. Remember, Paul was talking about how the Gentiles were on the outside and the Jews were the favorite of God, right? They were the chosen ones. And yet they rejected God. And in their rejection, because they rejected God and they ended up rejecting the Messiah that somehow through their rejection, God brought the redemption of the Gentiles. But Paul reminds them, but this story's not over yet. God is going to use the grace and mercy that has been shown to the Gentiles to show grace and mercy to Israel again. And he will bring them back in as well. And then he goes into verse 33 as he talks about these things and he thinks about these things and he goes, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge So this is this incredible picture that says we are beginning to grow in our understanding of God and it is our understanding of God that begins to open our minds to understand the world around us. So the closer we get to God, the closer we get to him, the closer we grow to his understanding and his wisdom, the more we begin to see the world the way he sees it. I love what J. Oswald Chambers says. We slander God by our eagerness to serve God without knowing Him. So many of us, we want to do something for God. I want to be a missionary. I want to be an evangelist. I want to be a pastor. I I, I want to do something great for the Lord. I want to work with children. I want to work with teenagers. I want to work with adults, which is a little side joke there. It's kind of funny when people say, you know, I love children. Because really what you're saying is, I love people for a little while, (laughs) you know? But anyway, so here's the thing. When we begin to think about doing things for God, okay? When we think about doing things for God, without knowing Him, we slander Him. Because the whole purpose of the gospel is what? That you would go and do, or that you would be. Doesn't all the doing of Christianity start with being something different? And doesn't the flow of doing start with this awe of who God is? We want to serve him, not because I wanna go and do something great, not because I wanna be recognized, not because I want my gifts highlighted. I wanna serve him because I have seen him. And if you've seen him, you wanna serve him too. And the closer and closer we get to God, the more and more our actions begin to change. See, the problem that we have when we fight our addictions is that we're trying to fight them by behavior modification when it really starts with, and I'm not saying behavior modification doesn't have its place maybe at some point, but it doesn't start there. It starts with understanding who we are, our identity. And we begin to see the world ourselves and our problems and our issues from that perspective. When we understand this great gospel that Paul has shared with us, the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has been doing, what we realize is God loves us just as we are. He doesn't expect us to become perfect. He doesn't love those who, who, who don't look at pornography or don't gossip or, or the people who pay their tithe every month on the gross instead of the net. You know, he doesn't look at that and go, man, I like them a whole lot more, man. You check this guy, man, look at this. It's perfect. No, he doesn't. Why? Because we are all fallen. We are all depraved. And so the fact that we have any good in us has to be that it comes from God and not from anything that we've done. Therefore, God's love for me has to do with something that he knows about me that he wants to do not anything that I know about me that I want to do and when I begin to engage in my relationship with God from that perspective all of a sudden it gives me so much freedom I don't have to perform to get his love or his favor I don't have to produce anything to enter into his presence he welcomes me not on my merit but because of what Christ has already done. And when I begin to understand that and think that, it begins to change the way I see the world around me. And it enlivens my spirit within me that God has placed there to do things for him as he leads me to do them. Paul wants us to begin to get away from this idea of group think. Do you know what group think is? It's when you get a whole bunch of group, uh, group of people together and before long, they all start thinking the same way. Um, there's no diversity there. And then what happens is they usually make a lot of problems. Matter of fact, a long time ago, there was a study at NASA and a lot of the problems that NASA um, experienced. Matter of fact, I think it was the first space shuttle that that blew up, one of the things that they noted as they did research and and, and went in to try and figure out what happened was groupthink was a big problem there. In other words, what happened was everybody began to think the same way and they didn't think outside the box and they didn't challenge each other and, and they missed a lot of things because of that. And so what, what, what Paul wants us to do is not to just get in a church and have a bunch of other believers tell us what we should be doing. Paul wants you to go into the presence of almighty God because that's why Jesus died so that you could go to him and not have, to have a bunch of yahoos telling you what you're doing, right? You go to the one who created you, who knit you in your mother's womb, who knew you before you ever took a breath and knows exactly what he wants you to be. He wants you to go into his presence and find what he has for you. That should be the motivation of everything that we do. See, for Paul, the mind and the body, and these things are closely interconnected for Paul and the way that he sees them and the way that they function. And they have to work as this, this coherent team, if you will. The mind and the body have to be in sequence. If I'm out there trying to do things for the Lord, but I'm not spending time with the Lord, that's not in rhythm. It has to be both and. And so having one's mind renewed and offering God one's body, like it talks about in verse one, are all the same things flowing out of one event. Christian living never begins with a set of rules. Now, does Christianity contain rules? Yes, that's not where it starts. As you move forward, those become the parameters that allow us to operate within, right? But truly, when we understand the beginning, the beginning is this offering of gladness this relationship that God calls us into, the whole of ourself being offered to God because he's been so merciful to us. He's came, he came all the way to meet us in our rebellion, in our sin and in our death. And so within that, that begins to involve this renewal of the mind so that we are enabled both to think straight instead of the twisted thinking that the world would have us engage in and to act straight in the way that God would have us to walk. See, in a nutshell, what Paul is commanding us to do here is to make use of what has been afforded us through Jesus Christ. We've been gifted the very Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has been imparted to us. The Spirit gives us the ability to discern the will of God for our lives. The will of God for our lives should be something that we are constantly putting into practice. That's what Paul's talking about here. Listen to what this author says. He says, the Christian has received the ability to prove what God's will is in the concrete situation. The renewal of the mind enables the believer to discern what is good, what is pleasing to God and what is perfect. And having discerned it, the same renewal sets him to the task of performing what is seen as the will of God. So it is to know the will of God and then to enact or perform the will of God, having now known it. How do we know it? Through a relationship. And so under the law of Moses, all of the sacrifices were living until they were sacrificed and then they were dead, right? What Paul is doing is turning that on its head. He's saying, because of what Christ has done, he's taking a dead sacrifice and he gives it life. And he's saying, and the return here is that in the life that you have been given, die to that old self so that life can come from what you used to be. Do you see the pattern? That's what he's trying to point us towards here. Now, now here's what's fascinating. When you get to the end of that passage right there, Look at the very end of verse two. He says there, to know the will of God, what is, what does he say? Good, acceptable, and perfect. Okay, now here's what happened. So this week, me and Kyle were talking about this passage because he's teaching at the other campus while I'm teaching it here. And so we talk about this, this passage together. And what I said to him was this. I said, Kyle, there has to be a reason that Paul uses three words here that all are very closely related. And there's really not a lot of things in the commentary. And Kyle said, you know what, I think you're right. I think, and so Kyle, you know, in his little academic mind, he's like, dip, 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 and he's like flipping pages and he's writing stuff down. And then all of a sudden he goes like this. He goes, oh my goodness. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, it's a chiasm. Now, only you nerds out there would actually know what a chiasm is, right? We've talked about them before, but it goes back to Jewish writing. Whenever Jewish writers use a chiasm, they're pointing you towards something. It's something like where if it started off uh, point A, point B, point C, and as they would continue, the next thought would relate to C, the thought after that would relate back to B, and the thought after that would relate back to A. So it'd be like A, B, C, C, B, A. Okay. And you see that a lot in the Psalms, but the, all the Christian writers or the um, New Testament writers would use chiasms in different places. So here's what's interesting about this. Uh, go to that next slide, if you would. Now look at what we have here. It says here, let me turn and see if I can see one. Um, if you look, it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy, righteous, and good. That's what he said in chapter seven. Okay, I'm gonna show you that in just a minute. But notice in Romans chapter 12, he says that God's will is perfect, acceptable and good. He says the same thing. So there's holy and perfect, righteous and acceptable, and both of them end with good. So if you have your copy of scripture, turn over to chapter seven so I can show you exactly what Paul was talking about. Remember, again, in chapter 12, he's picking up with these thoughts that left off in six, seven, and eight. And he says here in chapter seven, verse seven, he's talking about law and sin. He says, what then shall we say that the law is sin by no means? The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Look at the next verse. So the law is holy. And the commandment is, what does it say? Holy and righteous and good. You see that? So he's saying the law of God is perfection. But as much as I tried, I couldn't keep the law. Matter of fact, the more I tried, the more dead I became. And then he gets down to the point, if you look down, well, let's just continue reading because it's, it's it's a great flow of thought that he has there. Look at verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. What does Paul say at the beginning of chapter 12? Become a living sacrifice. Put that body that God has resurrected from the dead and put it on the altar. Why? Because you will have the temptation to go back to evil, to go back to sin because of that flesh. Put that flesh on the altar. Why? Because God is doing something new in you. Change the way you think, change the way you focus and realize you have been given the spirit of God. And so go to that slide in the next slide where it shows the picture again. If you see this, what the law demanded of you is that you be holy and you be righteous and you be good, but you couldn't do it because you didn't have the ability to do it. And every time you tried to do it, you failed miserably to the point that you get to that place where you say, wretched man that I am, who is gonna save me from this body of death? And along comes Jesus Christ, who shows us the perfect way, dies as the perfect sacrifice, comes up from the dead and offers us eternal life. And he says, come follow after me. And Paul says, how do we do that? How do we follow after Christ? Present your body as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable before the Lord, right? And then he gets to the end of that when it gets down to verse two and he tells us right there, what, what is God's will for you? God's will for you is that you also be completely righteous, just like Jesus was, just like the law demands. How do you do that? Because it's already been done for you. And the will of God is that you would begin to act, listen to me, like what's already true. Do you believe that Christ is your righteousness? Well, then start acting in that way. Is it gonna mean you're gonna be perfect? No, there's still that flesh. We still have that battle. We still have that fight, but we have something different than we had before the cross. And that is the spirit of God who enables us. He becomes our guide. He's the one who convicts us. He's the one who rebukes us. We have the word of God where every promise of God is extended to us. All of this is the beautiful picture that God has unfolded for us so that we can embrace this truth and we can live it out. So the one theme that we see here is that death brings life, right? Now, a lot of times we we get confused with this. Death brings life because we try and share that with somebody else. And they are like, man, Christ died for your sins. And they're like, so? I mean, why do you have to die for my sins? Because your sin demanded a payment. Well, you told me that God's all powerful. Yeah, he is. Why didn't he just forgive me? Um, and you know, you, 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 you're you going to convince them and all of a sudden they start convincing you and you you, you know you walk away with more questions than you had before you went and talked to them. And you're like, I don't understand this. Why did J- uh, Jesus have to die on the cross? Why, 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 why does salvation demand this? sacrifice? I don't make sense. That's because what we do is we separate our religiosity and our spirituality and we put it way over here as if it's disconnected from the rest of the universe. But let me tell you something. If you just back up and look at the whole picture, you see that, Jesus dying on the cross actually fits in with the way that God created the entire universe to work. Death brings forth life. What does the very first chapter of Genesis talk about? And the earth was formless and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And light was. Light came from darkness. Life came from death. How does this whole thing end in the book of Revelation? The very end says that there's nothing but death and then God calls forth life from the death. That the seas will give up their dead, the ground will give up their dead and we will all go into this judgment either into eternal life or into eternal death. So the whole of Scripture begins with life coming from death and it ends with life coming from death. But let's go a step further. Couldn't you also argue that from an agricultural point of view that life comes from death? Think about this. The little worm is crawling in the ground and he's eating his dirt, minding his own business when a bird comes by and eats him, when a cat comes by and eats him. And then the cat dies, his body decays, goes back into the ground. And that first worm's great-great-grandchildren eat that cat. (laughs) I mean, think about that. And we could all sing the circle of life, right? We could go into that whole chorus and uh, Brad's not here this morning. He knows that one real well. Uh, No, but you know, the picture is when we see it from an agricultural point of view, what do we put on our flowers and our flower beds? It's kind of disgusting. Manure. What is that? Dead stuff. Why? Because the death brings forth life. What about eating? Here's the thing that's true. And I'm not a nutritionist, all right? So, so you know, that's the little, uh, what do you call that? Disclaimer, yeah. But my thing is this, if something died so that you can eat it, that's probably better for you than if it didn't die. In other words, not a whole lot in Snickers died, okay? But when you eat a nice steak, something died and that's good. When you eat vegetables, right? Something died. Those are good too sometimes, depends on who prepares them and how much seasoning you put in them. But um, when we eat, think about this, the closer to death it is, actually the better it is. The fresher, the better, right? I mean, how many of you would rather have a steak that has never been frozen or a steak that's been frozen for three centuries like you have, and they bring it out like, I think it's still good. I mean, which which one tastes better? Which one's better for you? So I would make the point that from an agricultural point of view, from a biblical point of view, from a nutritional point of view, death brings life. I could even argue it from a relational point of view. How many of you have ever had this knockdown, drag out fight with someone? Maybe a brother or sister, or maybe a spouse, maybe a parent. I mean, you are just at odds. And man, it's like kind of one of those when you walked away, you're like, I don't know how I'm going to act when I see that person again. I don't know how I'm going to make that normal. And then all of a sudden, something blows your mind because that person comes back and says, listen. I'm really sorry about the way I acted and the things that I said. It was wrong. I don't know where that came from, but I'm sorry and I need you to forgive me. That person died to themselves, and wouldn't you say that it gave life to you? You think about people who make great sacrifices for us, think about the firefighters on 9 11. Um, You think about the, the policemen that patrol our neighborhoods, that put their lives on the line every day. When we hear about a tragedy, when one of them dies, we would say that it actually inspires us, right? What's interesting is we use that word without even thinking about it, but the word actually comes from Latin and in means in, obviously. And the other part of the word comes from the Latin word, spiros, which means life or breath. So isn't it interesting that we would say, we would look at someone's sacrifice and say, man, that is inspiring. What you're really saying is, man, that breathes life into me. So, actually, when we talk about the cross, we're talking about God doing something that completely fits with the en- entire narrative of the entire created universe from the things we eat, to how we relate to each other, to how we see events, death brings life. And so Paul says, as the cross of Christ has brought you from death to life, and you have the promise of this eternity, and this life is passing away, you know how you can honor God? Take your life here that he's given you and place it on the altar and give it back to him. Why? Because no matter what happens here, your future's secured. So why don't you live for something bigger than just that paycheck that you get every two weeks? Why don't you live for something bigger than just that degree, just that job, just that notoriety, just that girlfriend, that boyfriend, that hobby that you have, that sport that you love. Live for something that's gonna last beyond this world because this world is passing away. If God can do something so great, so fantastic with your deadness, think about what he wants to do with your aliveness that you could offer back to him as a sacrifice. What is it that God is calling you to die to today so that you can live? What is it that's standing in the way of you embracing these great truths of God? What aspect of the life that God has given to you, have you not fully dedicated back to him? See, the thing is this, if we are not growing in our relationship with God, it's because there's something that's impeding it. There's something that's blocking the growth. And it's our responsibility to examine ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to convict us and show us where that block is. And I'm telling you, nine times out of ten, probably ten times out of ten, it's something that's related to one of those two things. It's something in this world that we are holding on to and we haven't completely dedicated to the Lord or it's a perspective that we have of our life or something that we don't understand or something that we are neglecting that God has offered us through this. That is the beautiful picture of the gospel of God and what Paul wants us to understand about being a living sacrifice. Let's pray together. God, thank you for so great a salvation. And Lord, I know that with so many people in this room that there there are people here that don't know you as their Lord and Savior. There are people here that are curious, they're visiting, um, but they've heard. And Lord, I, I believe that it's by no accident that they're here today because you wanted to speak to their heart. Lord, there's some here that are yours, but they have been far off for a long time. And Lord, I believe that they are no accident here as well either, Lord, that you are drawing them. Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit that you would draw your people to you Lord, for those who are outside, may today become the day of their salvation. For those who are that prodigal child, Lord, may today be the day they come home and see their dad with open arms. And Lord, for the rest of us who are walking this path, Lord, help us to not get distracted by this world, but to keep our eyes on what is real and right and true. Lord, the only way we can do that is to keep you as the number one priority in our life to keep our eyes focused on you, to pour your word into our hearts that we may not sin against you. Lord, that we would keep that relationship so treasured, so prominent, so prioritized. Lord, that everything else flows from it so that we can know your will and we can carry it out. God, you are good and your love endures forever. We thank you for your faithfulness to all the promises you've given to us in your word. And I pray that through the power of your spirit that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word. And I pray that it would bring forth life from the hearts of those who have heard. We ask this in Jesus' name.